Morning. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Well, I appreciate your invitation back to preach once again here. And uh, I'd like to present God's word to you as we are beginning to roll into 2024. So we just sang from Psalm 1. Um, it reminds me of the fact that we're going to have some scripture readings. And one thing that maybe you might, might want to consider at the end of the service is to read Psalm 2 in the light of the passages that we will be reading. You know, um, well, main focus is going to be from Matthew 2, so I'm going to invite you, if you want to, you can open up your pew Bibles to page 960, I believe that's where it's located at this church, so um, you can do that, but we're going to be looking at three separate passages, and I'm going to tie them together. Uh, as I said, though, the focus is going to be on Matthew chapter 2, and when um, St. Matthew put together the gospel, you might say that he put various proofs all together in such a way that made it very hard for people to really reject the gospel and but in a certain way it was as confounding that so many had rejected it with their eyes it was presented clearly and yet they rejected it with their eyes and that reminds me of so much what we see today is that a lot of people will be presented with lots of things but we see a lot of things through the lens of our eyes it gets filtered through the heart and so before we begin, I'm going to ask that God might open the eyes of our heart so that we might see the glory of Jesus, the baby, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this precious gift of Christ that you've given to us. For without him, we are totally lost. We are um, hellbound, as we sang before. And so we thank you for that gift. We ask that whatever lens we might have, that you might do in a sense LASIK surgery upon us today. Clear our vision, help us to see Christ clearly for who he is. And in that light, ask that you transform our hearts too. As we roll into 2024, may we focus upon him so that uh, he might be glorified in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The three passages that I'm going to read from are from Genesis 3, 14 and 15, Revelations 12, 1 through 6, and then finally we're going to read through Matthew 2. So, um, if you want to, you can keep your Bibles open to Matthew 2 since that's the focus, but I want you to simply listen to God's Word. Genesis 3. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Revelation 12. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She is pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in the heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its, its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. 
and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne, the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God. And now we turn to our main passage, Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read through 23 verses. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi, from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the Magi, or the wise men, secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and, kill, sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two, were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who have sought, to, sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod. He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. 
As we roll into 2024, I want you to be able to see and maybe read the times to see what things are going on, not only in the past, in Christ's birth, but also in the present. The birth of Jesus is really a play out of a cosmic battle prophesied all the way back in the book of Genesis. From Adam and Eve forward, there is always a forward look to the one who would come to save them, to crush the head of that serpent. With each character, there is this hopeful anticipation that the promised one would come. The anticipation of the promised child would crush that serpent was so important to them that they took careful records of the genealogies. And yet every biblical character or hero is filled with some type of sinful disappointment as you roll the pages. You think, maybe this is the one, this is the one, this is the one, but no. Sometimes the characters try to push the promise forward by whatever clever means that they might have. Sarah gives her servant to Abraham because she was barren. Rachel asked Leah for a special type of flowers that she believed would aid in pregnancy. From Genesis 3, we see a cosmic spiritual conflict between the city of man and the city of God, where Satan and his children rage against the the children of God. Repeatedly, Satan tries to snuff out the prophetic promise so that his head would not be crushed. Cain killed Abel, but God gives Adam and Eve Seth. As the promise narrows through Abraham, we see Satan focusing on his children. Pharaoh has small Jewish boys tossed into the Nile so that they may be drowned. When the Jews were in the exile in Babylon, Haman, son of Hamadath, the Agagite, tries to snuff out all the Jews. But Queen Esther finds a way to save the people. On the other hand, there was a wicked queen in Israel, a daughter of King Ahab, and Jezebel named Queen Althea, who tried to snuff out the line of David, who actually she married into the line of Judah. But as she was putting the sons of King Azahiah's children to death, Jehoshabeth steals away little Joash and hides him away until one day he's able to be crowned king. Again and again, the serpent that snaked that enormous red dragon has his mouth wide open to swallow the promise of the hope of all humanity, the coming Savior. Because Satan failed to swallow all the types, he now tries to swallow the anti-type, the long-awaited Savior, the Messiah, Emmanuel, which your church is beautifully named after, right? God incarnate himself. This brings us to King Herod, or better known as Herod the Great, He was an Edomian nobleman, raised as a Judean, an ally of Julius Caesar, and he was unexpectedly named King of the Jews by the Roman Senate. He reigned from 37 BC to 4 AD. He was a ruthless king that had many ambitious projects, but also would snuff out anyone who got in his way. He jealously guarded his power. And as we look at Matthew 2, Verse 1 to 3, we read this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? 
For we saw his star and it, when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Can you just hear what's echoing in King Herod's head as they announced that? King of the Jews. King of the Jews. I am king of the Jews. That must have been rolling through his brain. When Jesus is preached, we should not preach him as a meek and mild, sentimental baby. Such a baby probably shakes very few worlds up, except perhaps their mothers. But Jesus, properly proclaimed, invokes in us either worship or agitation. A baby, a small child, a grown man, whatever phase, who is fully man and fully God, God incarnate, born not only king of the Jews, but king of everything, king of kings and lords of lords, that is someone whom you must contend with. But be aware, such a declaration can cause kingdoms to shake, agitate, and fall. As you can see from this text, it caused the agitation of the soul of King Herod and of all of Jerusalem. Everyone puts something at the center of their life, of meaning, of purpose, of orientation. In other words, something or someone is always on a throne orientating our worship in life. Some worship the state as if it were on the throne. Some put their favorite YouTube influencer or podcaster on the throne. In this narcissistic age, can we not admit that we often like to put ourselves on the throne? To proclaim baby Jesus as king can be agitating. He isn't asking if we want to put him on the throne of our heart. He is not consulting our opinion. Rather, it is a stark declaration. It's a fact. He is king. Christ properly preached is a proclamation that he is king. It's not a matter of your truth or my truth or what's convenient, or what seems to work, but it is the truth. The question, though, we must ask ourselves is whether we acknowledge God, whether we acknowledge Christ, or not. Notice that the Magi recognize this newborn king as more than simply a monarch. He is seen as divine, almost as if they had a sense of the divine Son of Man way back in the book of Daniel in chapter 9. He is worshipped when they come. So I ask you today, does the Christ child in you invoke worship or does it invoke agitation? Is there goodwill or enmity between you and the Christ child? It's not, is it not interesting that those who were far off are brought near to worship? And those who are so near to the Christ child are agitated at his birth. Perhaps you might have up in your home still your nativity scenes. Typically, those scenes are a consolidation of multiple parts of the narratives put into together in a single scene. You may have Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus and sheep and shepherds and 
three kings with great gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Tradition has simply simplified them down to three kings because there are three gifts. But notice that when we look at this text, it doesn't say kings, but it says the magi. So where does the tradition of the kings come from, which often people name Balthasar, Melchior, and Gaspar? Probably a good guess is from 500 AD, there was a Greek text from Alexander called the Excerpta Latina Barbary. Nonetheless, there are some Old Testament texts which seem to lead some indication of that, such as Isaiah 60, which does say, And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Lift up thine eyes round about, and see all they gather themselves together. They come to thee, thy sons shall come from afar, they shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praise of the Lord. Matthew 2 doesn't tell us how many magi came from the east, but what exactly is a magus or magi? In English, there are several words related to our word magi, such as magic, magician, and even magistrate. And you might ask, are there any examples of that within the, the scriptures? Well, if you were to look at the Old Testament to the book of Daniel, we'll see uh, about the Magi. Do you remember when Babylon was sacked by uh, sacked Jerusalem, that they took their youngest and the brightest back to Babylon, such as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were trained to be Magi. Kings at that time would surround themselves with magi or wise men so that they could receive wise counsel. Magi often educate, were educated in philosophy, science, religion, and even magic. They delved between the physical and the spiritual, giving predictive advice. They were astronomers and astrologers, not only knowing the stars, but they were interpreting the stars. They interpreted dreams. Kings used their knowledge to help them make executive decisions as to whether to do certain things, such as to go to war or not to go to war. You can see how kings would like advisors that could predict the future, and so these wise men became magistrates. So in a certain sense, they were very high government officials, in a certain sense, like kings. By the end of Daniel chapter 2, we're told that Daniel was made by King Nebuchadnezzar, the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar had a series of troublesome dreams. So he commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to be summoned uh, to tell the king's dream. And they showed up and Say, uh, to, to showed up and uh, say, Sure, King, tell us your dream and we'll interpret it to, for you. And Nebuchadnezzar says, No, no, no. I'm not going to tell you my dream. You're going to tell me my dream. And then you're going to interpret that dream. And then you will be greatly rewarded if you can do so. And if you can, if you can do that, great. But if you can't, you will be torn limb from limb. Not only you, but you and your whole household. And the Magi were trying to pry what that dream really was out of Nebuchadnezzar, but he was on to their game and said, you guys are just trying to buy some time. 
The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The things that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and furious and commanded that all the wise men or the magi of Babylon be destroyed. Soon the guards were knocking on Daniel's door and his companion's door to collect them so that they could be killed. And Daniel was like, oh, hold on a minute. Uh, What's going on here? So he asked for a delay of execution so that he might be able to pray to God for an answer. And in the middle of the night, the dream and its interpretation is revealed to Daniel. So Daniel manages to get an audience with the king, with King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel tells the king, You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, and in the middle of its thighs of bronze, and its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them all in pieces, them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Then Daniel interprets that dream to him. Each part of that statue represents kingdoms. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. Nonetheless, Daniel shows success of kingdoms to come, but the last part is the most important part. He says, And in those days, in the days of those kings of God of heaven, will set up a a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand. And that it broke into pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. This dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Since he gave that and was given the headship of all the magistrates, one has to wonder, what did he pass on? What did he feed to the others who were magi under his counsel? Let me be clear. I cannot exegete from Matthew chapter 2 that Daniel had an ancient influence on the visiting magi. But I can reason and speculate that perhaps Daniel had a strong influence that may have passed on to the magi through the ages. Tens of thousands of Jews did remain behind in Babylon after the return of the exiles. Many of them may have been magi studying the ancient Israelite prophecies of the coming Messiah. Daniel might have passed on things such as from Numbers 24, which says, I see him, but now I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. 
Daniel knew the promises of God in Jeremiah that the exiles would return to their homeland. In Daniel chapter 9, he had prophecies of the 70 weeks in which there was a chiastic structure focusing on the coming Messiah. Put it all together, there might, they may have discerned that there was a star and a time. In chapter 5 of the Westminster Confession, it says this, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, and govern all creatures, actions, and things. Sounds a little bit like our Heidelberg, right? From the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and free and mutable counsel of his own will, to the praise and the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Regardless, of how these astronomers or astrologers of the East discerned the sign that the king of the Jews was born, God used their experience to call and to summon them to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ to be worshipped. In many ways, it's a picture of the gospel of Jesus, which is not only a light to the Jews, but it is a light to the Gentiles, calling every man, woman, and child to worship the Christ. Christ is truly the universal king. Let's look at verse 11 of Matthew 2. And going into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. If you ever seen the staircase of uh, the ancient city of Persepolis, you'll see along the train, uh, the, the staircase, the whole train of dignitaries. And they're all bearing gifts to go to the king. In that sense, it's entirely appropriate that these men are coming with gifts to bring to a king. These gifts are an extension, though, of their worship as well. Look at the gifts that are laid before Jesus. It indicates that they saw in Jesus what John Calvin calls the menace triplets, the threefold office of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. The gifts presented by the Magi to the infant Jesus of gold, frankincense, and myrrh hold symbolic significance in the Christian tradition. While the Bible doesn't explicitly explain the, the symbolic meaning here in Matthew, the gifts um, given to them have had various interpretations over the centuries. And here are some of the common interpretations. When we see the gold laid before him, it's a symbol of his kingship. Gold is a precious metal associated with wealth and royalty. The gift of gold to Jesus symbolizes his kingship and acknowledges him as king of the Jews. It represents Jesus' royal and sovereign status. And also you must think about the fact that the temple itself was covered with gold. Frankincense. Frankincense is a symbol of divinity and priesthood. Frankincense is a fragrant resin used in incense and it holds religious significance. The gift of frankincense is often interpreted as a recognition of Jesus' divinity and his role as a high priest. Incense is used in the worship practice of the Old Testament priesthood, symbolizing prayer, our prayers, ascending to God. How about myrrh? It's a symbol of sacrifice and mortality. 
Myrrh is an aromatic resin with, with uses in embalming. The gift of myrrh had been interpreted as a foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf. It symbolizes the mortality of Jesus and the suffering he would endure for us. In this context, the Magi's visit it adds a somber note to the gifts, pointing to the future sacrifice of Christ for our salvation. Not only is Christ prophet priest, but he is also our atoning sacrifice. He is the king who is willing to lay down his life down for his people. Behold, if you look at this passage, there are many, many dreams. The Magi are warned in a dream not to return to Herod. Herod found out through the scriptures that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem according to Micah 5.2. Perhaps the scariest part of that prophecy to King Herod is that the ruler is coming forth of old of ancient of days. Herod wanted the Magi to do his dirty work of narrowing down the location of the child so that he could have him killed. One must wonder a few things about the star that guided the wise men, though. They saw the star rise in the east. They trek, their trek must have taken some considerable time. The text nowhere says that they saw the star as they traveled. And one has to wonder, why didn't it spark the curiosity of those who were in Jerusalem? At verse 9, it says, After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came and rest over the place where the child was. One must wonder if indeed the star is what we even call today a star, for the ancients had anything that was in the sky that would shine would be considered a star. There are many theories such as the star was a comet, but often that was an indication of an omen or planetary convergence, which brightened up a location. But the fact that it rests over the place where the child was seems to indicate that it may have been something maybe even lower in orbit. Who knows? Perhaps it was the Shekinah glory of God. It may be entirely natural or a miracle. Regardless, it didn't seem to be a homing beacon to Herod. He had to have the wise men locate the child. When they didn't show back up, that enormous red dragon was furious. Satan tried to snuff out the promise to Herod. You're supposed to see the recapitulation of Christ in all these events that are happening in Matthew with the events of Israel in the past. All those events in the past where the dragon raised its claws and its fangs to take out the promise, you must see that again in Jesus. Jesus is like Moses, being tossed into the sea. But ironically, this time, he's being pulled to Egypt. Part of God's purpose was to fulfill through it in, in Hosea 11, where he is able to call him back out of Egypt, where he says, I call my son, or more particularly, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus is being shown to be the true Israel and tying him to the Exodus event itself. When Herod was, discovered that he was fooled, he just took a broad sweep of his tail and wiped out all the young children under the age of two. 
The fact that Jesus escaped ties him even closer to the figure of Moses. Jeremiah says, thus the Lord says, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Matthew sees the slaughter of the infants of Bethlehem as a fulfillment of the prophecy of Jeremiah. The connection is made to highlight the sorrow and the tragedy associated with Herod's attempt to eliminate the perceived threat posed by the newborn king of the Jews. The reference to Rachel, a mother figure, weeping for her children, adds a poignant layer to this narrative, emphasizing the grief and the loss from this tragic event that the women had experienced. Rachel and Leah were both wives of the patriarch Jacob, also known as Israel. The mention of Rachel weeping in Jeremiah 31 is part of a broader context and symbolism. In the context of the passage of Jeremiah, the weeping of Rachel is often understood as a symbolic representation of the sorrow and the mourning of the people of Israel. Rachel, according to the biblical narrative, died while giving birth to her second son, Benjamin, and was buried near Bethlehem, according to Genesis 35. The location of her burial becomes becomes significant in later biblical imagery. The weeping associated with Rachel in Jeremiah 31 is part of this poetic, prophetic expression. The image of Rachel weeping for her children is a metaphor for the sorrow experienced by the Israelite women in the region of Ramah, which was associated in the area of Rachel's tomb. In the Gospel of Matthew, this prophecy is applied to the tragic event of Bethlehem where Herod orders the massacre of the infants. So Rachel is crying metaphorically, representing the collective grief of the people of Israel, particularly the mothers, in the face of the tragedy and the loss. The reference serves to emphasize the emotional impact of the events and draws a connection between the suffering of the people and the broader biblical narrative. As we wrap up the text for today, I want you to realize that as we come to worship the Christ child who is God incarnate, that the world may be more than agitated. They may be enraged. The dragon has many heads, the state, the media, the culture, the internet, maybe your workplace. Since Satan couldn't swallow the child, because he was snatched up by God and he now is on his throne. He is now in pursuit of the woman. But fear not, Jesus reigns. God prepared a place for the woman, the church, in the wilderness until he comes once again to redeem her. So my friends, humble yourselves therefore under the almighty hand of God so that in the proper time he might exalt you Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 
Resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering that you are being experienced, you suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we ask that when we think upon you, that we come to realize exactly who you are, that we proclaim you boldly, that um, you open up our eyes to who you are, and we ask that um, you bend our hearts in worship towards you. We ask with Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? And we are bidden to come and kiss the Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.